episode 217 of the Bowery Boys. Truman Capote's Black and White Ball. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And tonight, we're talking a legendary evening of glamour and mystery, which took place 50 years ago, on November 28th, 1966. Perhaps the greatest assemblage of famous people to ever take place in New York City in the 20th century, the Black and White Ball, hosted by famed writer and social butterfly, Truman Capote. That's right, 50 years ago, almost to the exact date. On that night of November 28th, New York and much of the nation turned their attention to Fifth Avenue and 59th Street. That rainy night, a long line of limousines stretched up Fifth Avenue, slowly making their way through the crowds to the main entrance of the Plaza Hotel. Those celebrities who had stepped out on the red carpet were wearing incredible costumes, custom-made gowns and tuxedos, all in black and white, and wearing masks. They pushed their way through reporters, TV crews, and crowds of wild curiosity seekers who'd been drawn to the hotel to watch this entire spectacle unfold. Every one of them, every costumed attendee who climbed the steps of the plaza had one big thing in common, perhaps the most sought-after accessory of the season— Each one came clutching an invitation to, quote, Mr. Capote's dance. It isn't like they were all just high society, or they were actors, or they were politicians. This was a mix of really the who's who Mm -hmm. in the United States and some of the most celebrated people abroad. But this party is taking place with an unusual backdrop, because, of course, these were the years of the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. and the country was experiencing this huge shift in civil rights. So we're taking a moment to focus on this particular party, but keep that context in mind as we discuss it. Well, so you're invited to join us as we head for the plaza and to Mr. Capote's black and white ball. Right. Well, we are both clearly excited to join the the celebration here that at the Plaza Hotel. We are at the Plaza, right? This is where yes. we are in New York right now. Now that's Fifth Avenue between Fifty mm-hmm. Eighth and Fifty Ninth Street on the west side of the street, facing right into Grand Army Plaza. Right, and the department store Bergdorf Goodman mm-hmm. is on the south side, and of course, on the north side is the entrance to Central Park. So, Tom, we will be arriving at the Plaza Hotel Uh for the party, but this story starts many, many decades before, and in fact, starts in the South, in New Orleans, Louisiana, on September 30th, 1924, with the birth of Truman Streckfuss Persons. Streckfuss? Persons? Yes, Streckfuss Persons. Those names would pass away and be replaced by Truman Capote. The same persons, a different name. (laughs) Different name, same, same person, persons. but different... Per- anyway, let's move how did, on. How did persons become Capote? Well, he was born in the South in a very troubled family. He was in and out of hotel rooms in different cities. His parents quickly divorced, and eventually in 1930, they deposited him in a town named Monroeville, Alabama, with his mother's relatives. It sounds very pleasant. Did he have friends as a young kid? One of his close friends at this time would be a neighbor girl named Nell Harper Lee. Uh Uh-huh. Who would, of course, become a famous author in her own right with To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, what a coincidence here, right? These two great writers living next to each other in Monroeville. 
Well, one day, Mother Lily May met a Cuban merchant by the name of Joe Capote. Mm -hmm. And Truman would eventually go to live in New York City, live with his new stepfather. First live in Brooklyn, and then eventually in Riverside Drive and many other places, but in a much more glamorous setting, obviously. And before he would even make that move to New York, what I think is amazing, in 1932, at the age of eight, he decided, while he was still down in Monroeville, Alabama, to throw himself a farewell party. And incredibly, he decided to host it himself and invite a who's who of the town of Monroeville, which included for young Truman, his young classmates, but also adults and other notable people that he, <laughs> he thought could make his list from around town. And and it wasn't just like a, you know, come over and have some cake and ice cream party. It was a costume party. So hmm. this was, needless to say, unusual for an eight-year-old <laughs> to throw a kind of elaborate party for himself. But I think a sign of things to come. Mm-hmm. He eventually graduated in 1943 from a private school, which we today is Dwight School. Mm-hmm. Do you know who? Uh, what other famous graduates came from Dwight School or, fr- or from the precursor of Dwight School? Fiorella LaGuardia mm-hmm. and Robert Moses. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. I did not know you were going to be able to drop Robert <laughs> Moses into this show, Greg. He didn't go to the black and white ball, no, weirdly he was enough. Not invited. He was not invited. His invitation was lost in the mail. <laughs> So he graduated from high school. Did he want immediately to become a writer? Well, he saw his writing in two different aspects. He saw it as a way to express himself, and he had this unique, one-of-a-kind talent. He also saw it as a way to get ahead in life. It was a way to get people to like him, and more important, to root him somewhere, to create a foundation. And that is indeed what happened in New York City for his writing allow him to meet all different kinds of people, and thus he became a fixture of New York City, although very much still being a Southern boy. Of course, he was also a gay man, and with a larger-than-life personality, lots of charm, and was able to maneuver into the graces of many important people. So he's beginning to maneuver through society and through his writing career already in his early 20s in the 1940s. Yeah, in the early 1940s during the war, he was a rather charming piece of gay arm candy on many young socialites as they hopped around to places like the Stork Club or El Morocco. In 1943, he became a copyboy for the art department at the New Yorker, which is a huge job to get for someone his age. But his personality soon overshadowed his work there. And, you know, people in the hallways were kind of mocking him for his effeminate gestures, sometimes questioning what gender he was. But the New Yorker in the 40s, I mean, that is the stuff of legends and of every writer's dream. So it seems like yeah. he had really made it. How long was he there? Well, it lasted for about a year. And he okay. got unceremoniously fired in the summer of 1944 for accidentally insulting the poet Robert Frost during a reading. Oh, no. The only way I can bring this to life is to read the words of Mr. Truman Capote himself, Okay. Quote, it just so happened that I was recovering from the flu and still had a very stiff neck. I was sitting on the front row. I bent down to rub my ankle and found I couldn't straighten up again because of my neck. There I was, bent away over with my hand on my ankle. It must have looked as though I had fallen asleep. And there he was on the platform, uh, Robert Frost, there Uh he was on the platform reading. Being unable to straighten up, I worked my way out of my seat and began to hobble as quietly as I could (laughs) up the aisle, still bent away over. That was when he decided I was sneaking out. I heard him slam his book. Then he said, well, if that's what the representative of the New Yorker thinks of my reading, I shall stop. Then... He threw the book, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who knows um, the veracity of that particular story. He was just trying to be discreet. And he was he was also precocious in other ways. He used to mm-hmm. even on his copy boy's salary, which must have been minimal, order food um, from twenty one. He'd get delivery from oh twenty one. You know, as one does. Ambitious. Well, you know what? He didn't need the New Yorker for during the late nineteen forties and into the fifties. 
Truman Capote was able to foster his talent for short story writing. This is really what how he made his name with short stories, selling to many different magazines, surprising magazines actually, like Mademoiselle and Harper's Bazaar. Mm-hmm. In 1948, he even won the O. Henry Award for the best short story. He was only 25 years old when he won it. It was for a story called Shut a Final Door. For comparison, the very next year. The winner was William Faulkner, who is in his 50s. So he's so now this was a big deal. Really, really a big deal. His biographer, Gerard Clark, called him, quote, the literary world's newest lion cub. Because he was just so charming to have around? Yeah, I mean, he had a unique set of qualities that got him both into literary circles mm-hmm. for his talent and into social circles for his unique charms. Very enigmatic person by the time he was in his 30s. He was short, little button, little blonde button <laughs> popping into cocktail parties. You know, some may have considered him to be a little lapdog of the wealthy, but Truman was smart enough to take full advantage of all of this. In 1948, he published his first novel called Other Voices, Other Rooms, which became a New York Times bestseller. And eventually, into the 50s, he would stretch into doing theatrical plays and even screenwriting for films. Have you seen, by the way, the book jacket for this, for this amazing novel? For Other Voices, the original one? Yes. No, I haven't. I'm just going to show it to you. Because the back of it, he's reclining back upon a sofa or a fainting couch or something with a seductive look, which was most unusual for books in the late 1940s. <laughs> yeah. Well, by this time, by the time of this photograph, he had been living in Brooklyn Heights, mm-hmm. which in the 1950s, there were a lot of artists, bohemians, wealthy socialites on the fringe living there. Um, He loved Brooklyn so much that he would eventually write a memoir called Brooklyn Heights. His opening statement in that particular book was, quote, I live in Brooklyn by choice, unquote. (laughs) So this gets us to the mid and late 1950s Mm -hmm. when I believe he has his first big breakout hit. And these two works are, in 1958, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, which, of course, spawned a very famous movie with Audrey Hepburn. We have a podcast in our back catalog, believe it or not, on Tiffany's that actually talks a bit about Truman Capote and Breakfast at Tiffany's. The following year, he began work on another book that was quite different from Breakfast at Tiffany's, inspired by a New York Times article on the brutal murder of a family in Holcomb, Kansas. That book would eventually become In Cold Blood. Now, the story of this crime and Truman's devotion to it would actually inspire films like Capote. Mm -hmm. The case would not be closed, and the men would not be convicted and then finally executed until April of 1965. So this was really like a six-year project for him, and one that was really gut-wrenching, during which he lived part of his time out in Holcomb, Kansas, He was very much affected by his experience out there, but at the same time, he wasn't in Kansas for six years. He was in Kansas and New York. It's interesting that he was leading a kind of double life, spending time with these criminals and also good Midwestern folk. Then he'd head back east and, you know, hang out with the literati and the the society folk or head off to Europe. So he had this very unusual dual life happening. He was uniquely qualified to be able to live this kind of life. Right. Which is amazing to think about this guy who, again, was quite effeminate Mm -hmm. and unusual. And and he knew that he had a sort of off-putting effect on people. But he was able to to use his powers to to charm people Mm -hmm. and and bring them over to his side. And so as a result, this book, In Cold Blood, when it came out in early 1966, transformed nonfiction writing. It's one of the most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. He called it his nonfiction novel. So he was using his skills as as a novelist, but combining it with journalistic practices. And it was a sensation when it came out in January of 1966. I, I wonder if it would have been a little bit like when Serial, the podcast Serial, oh, came sure. out, mm-hmm. and we were all just sort of stunned and floored by the format, and, and it felt kind of like a game changer. So where in New York was he living by the time of the publication? Well, in June of 1965, when he had finished writing In Cold Blood, Truman bought a five-room apartment on the 22nd floor of the newest and trendiest apartment building in the city, United Nations Plaza, which is 
still there, right? It's a glassy, modern uh, sort of twin structure. And this was the new hip place to live. And he lived here in 1965, got to know all of his neighbors. It became kind of the place to live. Super mod. So it seems like his mind has been in a very serious place here for many, many years. Right. How exactly did an idea for a lavish masquerade ball come to be? Well, remember that he did throw a costume ball when he was eight years <laughs> old. So it seems like it was always sort of there in the back of his head. But like you say, he had been in a very dark, intense place for six years writing this. So one of the prominent theories about how this all came about was that he worked so hard uh, on this intense and dark subject that when it was finally finished in 1965, he looked for ways to re-enter the world of the living. He, he was looking for a, a way to celebrate. And also at about this time, in the, in the mid-60s, the ball was all the rage. There were balls for everything. There were all kinds of society balls. Mm -hmm. And so people were very accustomed to going to the the New York ballrooms for charity balls. You know, a private party ball, like the one that he would throw, was unusual because it was not... He wasn't conceiving a charity ball. He you could was, buy tickets to you, it. Right. It wasn't benefiting anything but perhaps his own social ambitions. <laughs> But there was something also ironic that he decided to throw a ball to commemorate, you know, the completion of this big work and its success. And the, the fact that by this time he had assembled as his own personal friends the, the sort of who's who of celebrity in the world from all these different worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and he wanted to bring them together and was going to force them to hide their faces, perhaps their most important <laughs> assets he wanted to conceal uh, for his own sort of delight. So I had mentioned that he had been party hopping, lounge hopping with a bunch of debutantes in mm -hmm. his 20s. But now here he is. I think you called him arm candy. Arm gay arm candy. I guess he's upgraded to a significantly different class of companion. Yes, he was doing less of the lounge circuit at this point in his career and more of the upscale lunch and dinner party circuit and, and hanging out much more with sort of great dames of a certain age. These were refined and elegant ladies from high society who he referred to as his swans. These women were wealthy. They were at the top of society. They were beautiful and intelligent and elegant. And Truman set out to be their best friends. And they all presumably were married. And so yes. did, did their husbands mind that they were gallivanting with this jaunty fellow, Capote? Well, <laughs> remember that he was very obviously gay. So he didn't really present any real threat romantically mm -hmm. right, to these husbands. And in fact, he kind of served the husbands as well because Truman was becoming so famous himself and acclaimed as an author that he could actually help elevate the social status as well of the couple. It was like a... A win-win mm -hmm. situation. His glitter was rubbing off on them. Right. And, and actually, in the case of at least one of these husbands, he became a trusted confidant as well. And in some cases helped set up affairs for the husbands while even becoming best friends of the wives. Complicated. So who are a few of these swans in his <laughs> pond of socialites? Well, there were many beautiful swans in Truman's pond, but we're really just going to focus on two Right now, we're going to focus on Babe Paley and Catherine Graham. Babe, he met in 1959. She was very beautiful, and she had two beautiful sisters as well, who also married very well. Um, her sister Betsy married Franklin Roosevelt's son James uh, before divorcing him and then remarrying the millionaire Jock Whitney. And her other sister, Minnie, married Vincent Astor. But when that, you know, didn't really work out so well, she got bored with him and set him up to marry Brooke Marshall, who would become Brooke Astor. Hmm. And Babe, through her sister's connections, because they were marrying, you know, Whitney's and Astor's, mm -hmm. uh, was introduced to William Paley, who was the head of CBS. And we've talked about Mr. William Bill Paley mm -hmm. in our show on the history of TV in New York. A crucial, iconic figure in the development of the television network. So Babe Paley, mm -hmm. one of the finer swans in Capote's circuit here. Right. And she was instrumental in teaching Truman fine manners, how to behave in society. They became in inseparable. And it was through Babe that Truman gained new insights, right, into this the circles at this level of society. 
And the other woman, you said yes. uh, Martha Graham? No, Catherine Graham. The writer, not the dancer. That's correct. The, but I'm the, sure she could dance, though. The in uh, Correction, the publisher. Publisher. The, the publisher of the Washington Post, who was a Washington, D.C. dynamo. She was connected to every politician and powerful person in the city. Truman adored her called her KK. They frequently saw each other. Kay's story is a little bit more tragic because her husband, Philip, who had been the publisher of the Washington Post, had committed suicide in 1963, leaving Kay in charge of the entire operation, which she embraced and became really a publishing force and also quite a hostess. She would throw these legendary dinner parties, which of course Truman loved. In many ways, she was a connector in the political world on the Beltway in mm-hmm. the same way that Babe Paley might have been in New York. But a difference was that Catherine Graham was um, not the same glamorous figure of Babe Paley or Gloria Guinness or these others. She rarely wore makeup. She didn't really care as much. She wasn't obsessed about fashion the same way. And she ran this complex publishing empire. In the 1960s, uh, which was rare for a woman at this time. That's right. And Truman needed a guest of honor for his ball. So he looked around at his various friends and his big contacts, and he decided that he would make Kay, Catherine Graham, his guest of honor for his big ball because she needed cheering up. So we have the bell of the ball. Mm -hmm. We know that he wants to have a ball, but we need some party planning here. I I love a good party planning story, Tom. So You're very good, I have to say. You're very... People probably don't know this about you, but Greg is very good at throwing a party. You get down to the the nitty-gritty of the organization. I've thrown many an Oscar party, as well as other parties, but perhaps nowhere certainly as near as the party that we're about to talk about here. So Truman knew that he was going to throw a party to celebrate the release of his new book, In Cold Blood. He was re-entering the land of the living, and he was going to invite all of the people he knew and loved through all the different levels of society and from all over the world. He needed a place that was appropriate to hold the party, so he chose the ballroom at the Plaza Hotel, which by this point in 1966 seemed, you know, like a relic of another era, because here this this building had been constructed in 1908. This was anything but modern. Although just a couple years before, they had hosted the Beatles, there when they were on their uh, American tour. Mm -hmm. And so that got a lot of attention. And they clearly proved that they could handle a lot of chaos and attention. Well, Truman really relished his role as social planner and party planner, and calling together this list of 540 people to invite. He figured that he could reach out to that many people, and that the ballroom could fit, you know, if need be, 500 people. They weren't all going to accept. But now he took on the monumental task of going through his social Rolodex, really, and putting together the perfect mixture of all these different worlds. And it was truly a hand-picked mix with a great number of friends not even being invited because they didn't sort of fit this unique alchemy that he wanted to create. And he even spun the selection process into a publicity event of its own. You know, he carried around one of these black and white composition books, these notebooks that Mm -hmm. you see, same kind of tablet that he used to write in. He he had one of these that just had the word dance on the front. And inside, he scribbled down notes of people who were on the list or off the list. He'd put down a name, and later if he thought, oh, no, you know, for some reason they said something that got on his bad side, or they fell out of the good graces of the public, he'd scratch their name out very dramatically. Oh, horrifying. An off-the-list list. Oh, can you imagine? And he went around, and he was seen with this book, and he had lunches about town in very public places and was photographed with this book clutched to his side. He'd go to parties in the summer and sit by the pool and regale people with, oh, should I leave this person on or strike this person off or add this person to the list? Or can so-and-so come along without this person? Or should this... So really, he made it into a party game. So who did he choose exactly? Do you have a selection of, we have people, of, of yeah. attendees of lucky the lucky souls who got in? Well, so the hard thing about even talking about this party is that there are so many notable names on this list that you hardly even know where to start, right? Because it's basically like... Almost anybody who was somebody, quote unquote, at this moment in 1966 
was invited to this, right? We're talking yeah. big names from politics to the art world to, you know, to actors and writers. So people from the, the Kennedys to Greta Garbo and Lauren Bacall to... Diana Vreeland, Andy Warhol was there. Right. Leonard Bernstein, uh, Stephen Sondheim, to the mayor of New York, Mayor Lindsay, Senator Jacob Javits, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor... He did not invite the president, LBJ at the time, because he didn't want to deal with all the Secret Service. So he did extend an invitation to Linda Bird Johnson, mm-hmm. the, pre- the first daughter. And by the way, it didn't really work for him because she had her own Secret Service retinue with her. And so they were there the whole time checking people as they entered. And really, he should have known that. And he probably did know that and was excited by oh, that. Of course. But the list goes on and on. Shirley MacLaine, Henry Fonda, Vincent Minnelli, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Candace Bergen, you know, all of these people were really hot at the time. And those are just actors. And there's also musicians like Frank Sinatra and his new bride, Mia Farrow. Mm. Richard Rogers, Irving Berlin, all the greats of music. Great writers were invited, like James Michener, Christopher Isherwood, James Baldwin. And theatrical forces from Hal Prince to Tennessee Williams to Noel Coward. And these are still names that are boldface names to us today. Um, Also, lots of names from the society pages. Of course, all of the people with whom Truman had been dining low these many years. And then there were also some not so obvious choices for invitees, like a group from Kansas, people who he had met while he was there um, researching and writing in cold blood. He even invited the elevator man from his building over at the United Nations Plaza. A real hodgepodge, if you will. These were all people who were invited, although a key to the whole success of this, to the PR success of this, was that this list was top secret. Just as he had made his selection of his list a secret, he didn't tell anybody else who was invited. So he wanted to keep everybody in town guessing even once the invitations had been sent out in early October of 1966. That even was a story. Newspapers were writing about, well, have you received your invitation? Has it arrived in the mail? Is it lost in the mail? Have you not been invited? (laughs) So people were really sort of sweating it that they would be excluded from something that was shaping up to be the party that everybody was talking about. And these invitations were so valuable, they didn't have a plus one attached to them in many cases. Right. He would invite Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, but often overlook people's girlfriends or boyfriends or significant others if they weren't married. And that caused a lot of really awkward situations. And he was very explicit about the fact that you were not allowed to bring plus ones or extra uninvited guests. It was simply not allowed. This, of course, caused an outcry, especially, you know, among unaccompanied young women Mm -hmm. uh, who said, well, I can't go to this ball alone. And he assured them two things. One, that there would be up to 100 extra men at the ball who he had hired just to go around and ask women to dance. So to sort of facilitate dancing, Hmm. you know, he hired, he must have had a good time (laughs) with those interviews. (laughs) With that hiring process. And secondly, he also organized or asked his various swans and his friends and prominent positions to host pre-ball mm-hmm. dinner parties. And then he even worked on those guest lists to sort of shake up the crowds and to get people off and kind of in a good mood, that is to say a little tipsy, before they arrived at the ball. It was like little island parties, little tiny parties before the big party. So what did the invitation say? Well, the invitation read... Mr. Truman Capote requests the pleasure of your company at a black and white dance on Monday, the 28th of December at 10 o'clock, Grand Ballroom, the Plaza. Oh, and there was one last thing, Greg. He also included a dress code on the invitation. It read, gentlemen, black tie, black masks, ladies, black or white dress, white mask, fan. Well, listener, you're in luck, for we will be your ticket into Truman Capote's Black and White Ball, and we shall escort you inside after this break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values 
are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So it's the morning of Monday, November 28th, 1966. The city awakens, as any other day, it was a Monday morning, over 99% of New Yorkers, I would even say 99.9% of New Yorkers, went about their day as normal. The top story in the city was actually a smog crisis. There was a historic pollution incident that had occurred the prior week and that made New York look like it was engulfed in clouds. It's very sinister and disgusting. But a select few that morning woke up in a flurry of activity, their entire day consumed with the preparation for Truman Capote's ball that very evening. Down on Fifth Avenue, exclusive salons like Vidal Sassoon and all the hat makers, the millinaries and cosmetic artists were frantically racing around to satisfy their wealthy and connected clients. Like Adolfo and Halston? Yeah, Halston actually made dozens of masks. So if you wanted to get a mask, and I guess everybody needed to get a mask, Mm -hmm. you went to a hat maker. They were also mask makers. Right. Adolfo actually Mm -hmm. said, quote, a lot of birds donated their feathers to the cause. But but not everyone went fancy. Keep in mind that Halloween had just happened. All right. So, you know, the, you had people like George Plimpton making rather droll decisions by wearing a cheap store-bought mask. As he said, quote, the mask was so full of glue I got high from sniffing it all night, unquote. <laughs> and, and well, even Truman Capote bought his mask just across the street at F.A.O. Schwartz for 39 cents. Yes. <laughs> The dressmakers and tailors were had been working for weeks fitting these original gowns and these tuxes for mm-hmm. hundreds of guests. These top society women, they they had mannequins that were padded to their exact proportions so that the tailors who worked at Bergdorf's could easily fashion a new piece that was right off the Paris runway, get the same patterns, and fashion one for their specifications. Wow, I'd like to have my own masquerade ball with just those mannequins. <laughs> that would be a very quiet dance floor, Greg. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> well, jewelers were also on the go here, delivering millions of dollars of gems to their clients. One attendee by the name of Gloria Guinness. Mm-hmm, another one of uh, Truman Swan. Another swan. Well, she wore diamonds and rubies, a mixture. Very and they were daring. Yeah, and they were so heavy that she claims to have stayed in bed the whole next day to recuperate. Oh, what a tough life it must <laughs> be for Gloria Guinness. Well, by the late afternoon, crowds were gathering outside the party's location here at the plaza, standing behind these partitions as radio reporters were broadcasting live right from there, from Grand Army Plaza. Traffic was all clogged up around this area of Fifth Avenue and all along those streets in the 50s. I mean, could you imagine these kinds of traffic headaches around that area today? In the 50s on Fifth Avenue? They wouldn't do that. 
Mr. Capote himself had already checked in to the plaza, as had Ms. Graham. She had her own separate room, and they were planning on having a light dinner, mm-hmm. uh, than just the two of them. They were just going to order in, and how fabulous that they were actually staying there, because of course they had their own places in town, but <laughs> no, they had to have their own suites oh, for the course. evening. Oh, of course. No, naturally. Well, guests were arriving from all over the world. Many, like Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow, had flown in the night before, but you even had others, more exotic guests, like the Maharaja from Jaipur, who had just landed that day and hurried to a hotel room to change. How glamorous and exotic. Of course Truman was friends with the Maharaja. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. Just you wait. As you had mentioned earlier, the party guests would actually gather at private dinner parties. I read 15 in one place, 18 in another place. 18 different parties. Different parties. Just to kind of relax them. It began sharply at 7.30, and that was when the first flutes of champagne were consumed at this time. Well, was the weather cooperating? No, it was actually just raining. Oh. And partially because of that, and partially because of some people's late preparation, because they had so much to do, and partially because of some of these dinner parties perhaps being more entertaining than they were supposed to be, everyone was kind of late Mm -hmm. to the party. Even Truman and Kay... Ms. Graham here, that they had stopped for cocktails at the Paley's house, where other guests there included Lauren Bacall and Prince Stanislaus, <laughs> um, who had married, recently married into the Bouvier family. So of they course. had cocktails with them there, but barely had any time back at the plaza to scarf down a little caviar and champagne before they had to head down to greet the guests at the party. The doorways were lined with police officers and the aforementioned Secret Service, who were there for Linda Bird Johnson. And they checked everyone who arrived. And, you know, they had the option of going up the elevator to the Grand Ballroom. But, of course, most people just simply took the Grand Staircase, you know, so everyone could check out their fancy frocks. So these guests would arrive at the at the outside steps mm-hmm. at Grand Army Plaza, walk up in front of uh, the reporters you mentioned radio, but also television. Yes, there was a live broadcast, and and then they would make their way up, posing for the press, and then head inside and parade on yeah. down to the next staircase to head up to the ballroom. So when did the first guests arrive? So it was a little bit after ten, and the first guest was Alexander Lieberman, who was the editor of Condé Nast, and his wife. We've mentioned in a prior podcast, she was the great milliner of Saks Fifth Avenue, Tatiana of Saks. Then the Kansas 11 showed up. So the people from Kansas showed up early. You can imagine that this newspaper publisher, Mm -hmm. Catherine Graham, was in a bit of a daze. She said later, quote, Though I obviously appreciated it and loved the role, I was terribly nervous. I felt like an ancient debutante. Once I forgot all the excitement outside and the party really started, it became great fun. So, of all of those guests that did arrive for the party, they were greeted with the indulgence of 450 bottles of Tattinger champagne. Mm. And, and most people uh, partook of that, except for, of course, Sinatra, who preferred his whiskey. So, so by 11 or 11.30, most of these hundreds of guests had arrived in the ballroom and, and were milling about, drinking champagne. Right. So they were dancing politely to the music at first of Peter Duchin and orchestra. And then a little bit later in the evening, the sizzling sounds of the Soul Brothers, a rock and soul ensemble from Detroit. People were dancing, but mostly they were just like in awe of what was happening. Like this was the weirdest thing in the world. All these famous people with masks on, all wearing black and white. And again, many of them were famous, but they weren't used to being with all these other types of celebrity in the same space. An extraordinary mix, a -a one-of-a-kind mix. One of the early people to really grab the dance floor and grab people's attention was Lauren Bacall and Jerome Robbins, who really cut a rug. An amazing duo. I'd love to see those two on the dance floor. (laughs) She was having such a good time with Jerome Robbins that when Arthur Schlesinger Jr. came up to ask for a dance, he said, quote, I tried to cut in on my old friend Lauren Bacall. The actress admonished him. Don't you see who I'm dancing with? (laughs) She also danced with Capote as well, one of the few women to actually uh, get Capote on the dance floor that night. Oh, interesting. He was so busy working the door and also bringing people together. This is 1966, and reality, the real world, did slip in to the party once or twice. 
a woman off the street managed to get into the party and actually drink a glass of champagne before chiding Capote for, quote, spending all this money when there are people all over the world starving to death. Then over in the corner, you had McGeorge Bundy, who was the former national security advisor for Kennedy and for President Johnson. Well, he just happened to be sitting next to playwright Lillian Hellman, as one does, when he was accosted by Norman Mailer, who came over and began arguing with him about the war and even wanted to get into a fistfight with him outside. Mm. And it just took the intervention of Miss Hellman here just to hold the two back. Well, clearly this all worked up some appetite, so by midnight they actually brought out a buffet of food. That's right. Uh, Truman had ordered his favorite, chicken hash, which is a sort of chicken dish um, that involves a lot of cream baked, you know, and Mm. then sort of smothered in some more cream and hollandaise sauce, I think. Sounds, you know, at midnight when you're at a party, (laughs) sounds pretty good. And for those who didn't like chicken hash, there was also spaghetti, plenty of champagne, and the party raged on. At midnight, they were permitted to take off their masks, although many of the men had already done so beforehand. And we should also note that many of the women were not wearing their masks because, you know, a mask is a terrible thing to attach to a beautifully made up face. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want to do when your makeup is just so is like, you know, stick a mask on your head. So they were wearing them in other ways on their in their costume. Yeah, they were holding them on a stick, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. like placing them up against their nose. You mentioned Sinatra. Well, he stuck around until about 2.45 in the morning when he signaled that he and his wife Mia and their sort of entourage were going to take off and hit up a dive bar instead. Truman, of course, did not want Sinatra to leave because all eyes were on Sinatra. He's one of the biggest stars. Right. And... uh, but nonetheless, he did, he did take off and out a side door and through kind of a secret escape from the plaza. But the party goers danced on till about 3.30 in the morning. The last to leave, in fact, were the group from Kansas who were Whoa. the first to get there. They were having the time of their life. Well, yeah, you want to just soak it in, absorb the whole party because, you know, you're going to go back to Kansas and tell, relive this story for the rest of your life. And they didn't even go home from there. They hit up another club downtown. They were really doing it up. The party was in all the papers, of course, the next day, uh, including photos and sketches and reports from outside where photographers were waiting by the staircase, but also a few embedded reporters who Truman had invited inside as guests themselves, including Charlotte Curtis at the New York Times. And she wrote the Times big write-up the next day, headline, Capote's Black and White Ball, quote, the most exquisite of spectator sports. Truman Capote, still stunned by the number of prominent people who begged him to invite them to what he insisted upon calling his, quote, little masked ball for K. Graham and all my friends, finally gave his much-discussed black-and-white dance at the plaza last night, and it lived up to nearly all of its extravagant advance notices. The guests, as spectacular a group as has ever been assembled for a private party in New York, were an international who's who of notables. There were 540 diplomats, politicians, scientists, painters, writers, composers, actors, producers, dress designers, social figures, tycoons, and what Mr. Capote called international types, lots of beautiful women and ravishing little things, unquote. And nobody seemed to be having more fun than the host. And it goes on and on for six columns here with a photo of Truman and Kay standing at the door. The next day, the Times created a real social stir when they actually published a list of everybody who had been invited or attended the party. And this was scandalous. People who had not been invited to the ball had been trying to save face by saying, you know, to their friends and their Mm -hmm. acquaintances, oh, well, we would just love to go. But, you know, Joel has business out of town or we just happen to be visiting friends and in Florence at the time, whatever. People were constructing elaborate excuses that took them outside the city. And the world could see a day after the party that many people simply hadn't been invited, who had been pretending to have been invited. Okay. But meanwhile, there's a war going on. Perhaps people want to, like, keep it in check here. Yeah. And, you know, some reviewers were much more grounded in reality. So there were the effusive reviews in The Times and in Women's Wear Daily and in other journals that were read by society. 
But there were many other critics who gave it negative reviews, you know, who resented that it was happening in the midst of the Vietnam War, which had started the year before, a war on poverty under LBJ, civil unrest and civil changes and civil rights that were taking place and sort of inspiring and rocking the nation. It seemed to many to be so foolish to get so dolled up for this kind of frivolity. And many of these critics, including Pete Hamill, writing over at the New York Post, pointed to another element that disturbed them. And this was perhaps the easiest critique of all. The general question of propriety in the first place. Was it proper to be throwing this this party that they were calling the party of the century in order to celebrate the murder of an entire family in Kansas? Could anything be more out of touch than society's most elite frolicking around and celebrating this literary achievement, what they saw as this very notable occasion? Because it seems like it was never just about Catherine Graham, who was the quote-unquote guest of honor. It was always about Capote, and he was lapping up the success of this book, which had a very disturbing content. Right. From the invitation to all the press coverage, it was very clear that this was Mr. Capote's party. But then again, Mr. Capote dismissed a lot of these criticisms as just being lodged at him from people who hadn't been invited to his party. (laughs) Of course. So here, Mm -hmm. post-party, how did the rest of Capote's career go? Well, it seems like this was really the pinnacle of his career and really of his life. Things took a sadder turn after the party for Truman. He started drinking more. He struggled with drugs over the years. And while even he was working on his next great novel, he was eventually accused of betraying some of these friendships that he had so carefully cultivated in the first place that made this party possible in the first place. And I don't think you can argue with that when you read some of these stories of former friends that he kind of turned his back on. Well, probably most notably in 1975, he published La Cote Basque, which was a very thinly veiled story basically, of Bill and Babe Paley and of their relationship and their most intimate details that really only Truman could have known. Here he was, you know, nine years after the party, betraying his best friend, Babe Paley. That came out in 1975, and Babe never uh, forgave Truman for that. And not only her, but most of the rest of high society completely abandoned Truman. He would go on to appear on, you know, TV talk shows kind of do that circuit. He appeared in a movie in 1976, Murder by Death. That's a good one. In which he played Mm -hmm. himself. So he was sort of becoming a caricature. And he was still writing some stories and magazine articles and was undeniably a celebrity. Babe Paley died in 1978 of cancer at the age of 63. Catherine Graham continued to run the Washington Post through some of its most celebrated coverage, including the Watergate investigations. She died in 2001. And Truman died on August 25th, 1984, in the Los Angeles home of Joanne Carson, the ex-wife of Johnny Carson, who had lived next door to him at United Nations Plaza and was one of his final swans. And finally, I'd like to leave us with a little passage from the book Breakfast at Tiffany's, one that sort of speaks to New York City and one in which I hear the voice of Truman Capote very loudly in it. This is a scene where Holly Golightly and the narrator, Fred, are walking around New York City. Quote, Once we walked all the way to Chinatown, ate a chow mein supper, bought some paper lanterns, and stole a box of joss sticks, then moseyed across the Brooklyn Bridge. And on the bridge, as we watched seaward moving ships pass between the cliffs of burning skyline, she said, Years from now, years and years, one of those ships will bring me back, me and my nine Brazilian brats, because yes, they must see this, these lights, the river. I love New York even though it isn't mine, the way something has to be, a tree or a street or a house, something, anyway, that belongs to me because I belong to it. And I said, do shut up, for I felt infuriatingly left out, a tugboat in dry dock, while she, glittery voyager of secure destination, 
steamed down the harbor with whistles whistling and confetti in the air. Join us on BoweryBoysHistory.com where we'll have photos, fabulous photos. Many, many photos. This was a well-photographed event, no surprise. (laughs) Thanks to Mr. Capote himself. We'll have photos of the entire affair. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Some things you can check out and read if you want more information. Get the biography of Truman Capote by Gerard Clark. And of course, the, the movie Capote is based off of. And of course, that's a great movie you should check out as well. There's a wonderful Vanity Fair article by Amy Gail Collins about the black and white ball with sumptuous photographs. And I really enjoyed Deborah Davis's book called Party of the Century, The Fabulous Story of Truman Capote and His Black and White Ball. She really dives into every aspect of his life high society and the planning of this ball right down to how how fashion worked in the 1960s in New York. The plaza, by the way, is featured in our book, The Adventures in Old New York, which was in bookstores right now. And we're going to start hyping it again because it is a magnificent holiday present. Ah, perfect for your friends, perfect for your enemies, you know? <laughs> Actually, sure. Yeah. Might as well give them an education, a firm grounding of New York City history, neighborhood by neighborhood. Please also subscribe to our spin-off podcast, The First Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. That way you'll get one show a week in your feed of interesting and unusual history. And this is a great one, Greg. The, the latest one on the TV dinner at the Turkey Dinner, Swanson. I mean, all of these characters <laughs> that come to life. It's surprising, right? Yes, and great vocal actors brought into this episode as well. Yeah, including Tom's sister-in-law, Meredith Franco-Myers, who did a fantastic job. Very proud of her. And finally, we want to thank our supporters on Patreon, who donate a little bit of money and and help us produce a new show every two weeks. We would not be able to do this without the support of our friends at patreon.com slash boys. And one more thing, Greg, that we haven't mentioned in a very long time. We would love it if you have a moment to head to iTunes and write a review of the Bowery Boys. Remember how we used to ask for that back in the day? Yeah, but it's still a valuable thing because it helps uh, with the prominence of the show. That's right. And uh, it just spreads the word. There's a lot of wonderful reviews and we thank people for them. But having new kind of fresh reviews that sort of discuss our recent shows would be of great assistance. Yes. So head over to iTunes and feel free to leave a review. You and we thank you very much. And finally, check our blog for two live events that we're doing in December of 2016. More information will be found at BoweryBoysHistory.com. So on that note, thank you for listening to the story of Truman Capote and his black and white ball. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. 